We'll be in Ezekiel 37 this morning as we continue on. Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. And He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And lo, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, You know. Again He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you and cover you again with skin and put breath in you so that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, Son of Man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. So I prophesied, as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Father, I I love Your Word. And I love what You do. We sing the song from time to time, I'm amazed at what Your Word tells me You did. And this is one of those moments, I'm just amazed. I cannot imagine being Ezekiel and, and walking through this vision. What a remarkable thing, but a remarkable thing that You're saying through this, that You are revealing in this. And I pray that we would have full understanding of it this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open wide to receive the message. And Father, that while You show us more signs of of the times in in this time of the signs, that Lord, You would also move our hearts to respond and to act, just as Ezekiel was so willing to act. Holy Spirit, we pray Your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. James Weldon Johnson was born June 17, 1871. How many of you are familiar with the works of James Weldon Johnson? James Weldon Johnson was an American author. He was an educator. He was a lawyer, a diplomat, songwriter, and early civil rights activist before his death on June 26, 1938. In 1899, he gained his first success as a writer with a published poem that was later set to music called Lift Every Voice and Sing. In 1912, his most famous work was published anonymously entitled The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. In addition to serving on Theodore Roosevelt's presidential campaign and then in his administration, James Weldon Johnson became the first African-American to receive a professorship at NYU. Again, think about when he was born, 1871. If you know your history, the Civil War was in the 1860s. This was, was an amazingly accomplished man in a time in our country where such accomplishment would be very difficult, especially for a man of his nature. His funeral in Harlem was attended by more than 2,000 people. So highly respected was James Weldon Johnson. But there's another reason this brilliant and accomplished man is known. Many American school children are familiar with perhaps his most enduring work. It's a song which is sung in our schools. It begins, The toe bone's connected to the foot bone. Foot bone's connected to the Ankle bone, ankle bones connected to the leg bone, right? Okay, knee bone, thigh bone, all the way up. The bones are connected. The song is called Dim Dry Bones. And yes, the words are inspired by Ezekiel 37. In fact, James Weldon Johnson wrote the song as a teaching song to explain Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of the Dry Bones. The actual chorus often changed in our schools so as not to confuse impressionable young minds with the truth. (laughs) 
The actual chorus goes like this. Ezekiel cried, dim, dry bones. Ezekiel cried, dim, dry bones. Ezekiel cried, dim, dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. And that's the song. And that amazed me because my memory of the song was Herman Munster singing it back in the 60s. I don't know what you heard. We are right now in the midst of several 2,500-year-old prophecies, but these old ancient prophecies might just as well have been written in the morning news today. For all of their applicability and their relevance, it's absolutely astounding. Wednesday night we looked at the mountains of Israel. Har Yisrael in the Hebrew, in Ezekiel 35 and 36. If you were not able to be with us Thursday night or Wednesday night, I highly recommend you to go back and listen to the teaching. Because it's not just about the mountains of Israel in a time far gone, a time far away. It is about the mountains of Israel and how they are impacting the world today. The whole issue surrounding the mountains of Israel. And if you think, oh, you mean like Mount Carmel or Mount Hermon or, or you know, uh, those mountains? No, that's not what we're talking about in the mountains of Israel. Ezekiel is the only Hebrew prophet who even uses the phrase, the mountains of Israel, but he uses it 17 times. And you Bible students know, 17 in the Bible is the number of? A lot. A lot. A number of times. Look at Ezekiel 36. Go back one chapter, verse 8. I just got to catch you up a little bit. Whether you were here or not, if you were here, a reminder, if you weren't, get caught up and understand this. He says, You, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. For behold, I am for you. I will turn to you. And you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you. Who? All the house of Israel. All of it. And the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as you formerly were, and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel. He's very clear about that to walk on you and possess you so that you will become an inheritance and never again bereave them of children. And I shared Wednesday night, in 1967, in the Six-Day War, Israel retook sovereign control over the mountains of Israel for the first time in 1897 years. People don't realize what this significantly means. The mountains of Israel includes Shechem, which is Nablus today. Jews can't even go into Nablus right now. It includes Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle sat for the first 150 years that Israel was in the land. It includes Bethel. It includes Ai, Bethany, Bethlehem, Hebron. And it includes what Ezekiel calls the highest mountain of Israel, in Ezekiel 17.23 and 20 verse 40, the highest mountain of Israel, Jerusalem. If you were to see a picture of it today, you would be looking at what politicians and propagandists call the West Bank. And God says, I'm going to re-inhabit this region of Israel, the mountains of Israel, with my people Israel. They will rebuild the cities. They will inhabit the land. You wonder why there are Jewish settlements in the Palestinian area of the West Bank today. It's because of God's word saying, my people will inhabit Judea and Samaria. That's what the Jews call it. Ancient Judea. Ancient Samaria. The mountains of Israel. Those who are misinformed will say, doesn't that land belong to the Palestinians? And I say, listen to Wednesday's teaching. Because it's very clear. The land has never belonged to the Palestinians until Yasser, that's my baby Arafat, (laughs) in the 1960s, made it an issue. Prior to that, no one even wanted the land. During the entire Ottoman Empire of 400 years, it was inconsequential. It was a land laid waste, desolate, just as the Lord prophesied about the mountains of Israel early on in Ezekiel. But now, he says, it's going to be fruitful. 
I'm going to replant. I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to fill you with man and beast. All of my people Israel will inhabit the mountains of Israel. God promised to do that. Now we move on into Ezekiel 37. In fact, I would proclaim to you that we are in Ezekiel 36 and 37 today, not in the teaching, but in history. This is where we are. This is where we sit. Where we are here in the last days. These are the days of the rattling. The days of the revival, the restoration, the reunion, and the royalty of Israel. And those are your five points for this morning. So you want to follow these through as we go through. We begin with the rattling. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Let me stop right there. I get that. I understand that. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says. The hand of the Lord ever been upon you? You kind of know when the hand of the Lord is upon you because typically He's asking you to do something you don't want to do. Or He's redirecting you. Or He's disciplining you. The hand of the Lord has been upon me this week. I'll just tell you. And it was a little uncomfortable. The hand of the Lord is upon me, says Ezekiel. And He brought me out by, note this, the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. Now I remind you, well, let me ask you, where is Ezekiel? Where does he live? Babylon. So as Ezekiel 37 opens up, the prophet's in Babylon. He is now brought out of Babylon by the Spirit of the Lord in a vision. Well, how do you know it's a vision and not literal? Because God tells us later in the chapter. Every time God gives an allegorical picture or a visionary picture of something that, that represents something else, He tells you. Here's what this means, as he will as we get further down in the chapter. Here's what this vision is all about. So Ezekiel is now transported in a vision by the Holy Spirit to this this valley filled with dry bones. This vivid vivid vision in a valley. What valley? Where's the valley? I believe the context indicates it is a valley in the mountains of Israel. And I think there's more proof and evidence of that as we go on. But in the vision, he's taken to the mountains of Israel. He is now down in a valley of those mountains, so politically the West Bank. Literally, theologically, Judea and Samaria. In a valley in the mountains of Israel. More on that in a minute. Verse 2. He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were dry. Some things to note about dim bones. First of all, note that the bones were scattered. They're not stacked up. They're not piled up in heaps. They're scattered across the entire valley. What does that mean? It's as if they're left over from war. Bones from bodies left to rot from war and so scattered everywhere. Second thing to note about the bones is they were scorched dry as though they had been there a long time. Brittle, old, dried out bones. Scattered across the valley and to emphasize the hopelessness of the situation, the Lord says to Ezekiel in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. It wasn't a flippant response. In fact, the more I read over that and thought about it, the more I realized Ezekiel's not being flippant, he's being reverent. Because the only one who knows the answer to the question is the Lord. Not only the answer, can they live, but will they live? Is God about to do something here? Lord, you know. I love that in the faith of Ezekiel. He's not questioning God. He's not saying, well, that's impossible. Son of man, can these bones live? No, Lord. What are you thinking? Look at him. He says, you know, Lord. And God knows. He knows if a man can live. He knows if a man is going to die. God knows. That's why we pray, isn't it? We go to the Lord because He knows. And we not flippantly but reverently say, the Lord knows. God knows what's happening tomorrow. Now in our culture, it's become somewhat, somewhat flippant. You know, Can you afford your house payment? God knows. You know, instead of the reverent, oh Lord, you know. 
Jesus said in Mark 10.27, with people it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's underscore that. All things are possible with God. Most things are impossible with man. But with God, all things. All things are possible. Verse 4. And again He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus the Lord God uh, says to these dry bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And I, as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. The toe bone connected to the foot bone, foot bone connected to the ankle bone. I mean, can you imagine? Ezekiel just does the weirdest, I think, request of the Lord of Ezekiel in the entire ministry. Hey, prophesy to the bones. Now, I've prophesied to dead groups of people before. <laughs> But to the bones, and they start to rattle, and they come together. The Lord just can't let sleeping bones lie. He's got to do something here. He stands them up. Toes to feet, to ankles, to legs, to knees, to thigh, until Ezekiel is now surrounded in a vast scene of standing skeletons. How cool is that? You know, when I was a kid, I used to love skeletons. I thought that was so... I mean, skeletons were just cool. 1958. Some of you may recall the movie The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad came out. Yes! John, I get a fist in the air for that one. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. What a great movie! You know? Sinbad fighting the skeletons. All the skeletons have their swords and they're up there fighting Sinbad. And I, I as a kid, oh, oh. I saw a special reshowing of it in the mid-60s that, that came to our neighborhood theater and I wanted to be Sinbad for years. And I just wanted to fight. Or a skeleton. Either one would have been cool with me. Awesome. But the Lord is painting a picture here. Not of a person. And you've got to understand this. Not of a person but of a nation. And of all these skeletons standing around Ezekiel, this is the beginning, this is a vision, a picture of a nation coming back together. Coming back to life. It's kind of like the prophet Hosea said in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. What a marvelous prophecy. Jesus was raised up after three days, right? On the third day, Jesus was raised up that anybody might return to the Lord, might live before Him. And furthermore, if a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and for two days... Hosea says after two days He will revive us. Well, it's been 2,000 years for the Jewish people, hasn't it? After two days He'll revive us. And on the third day we'll live before Him. I think perhaps the third day references or implies the millennial kingdom, the third thousand year, that thousand year reign that's coming. Time for revival, gang. It's time for revival. In 1897, Theodore Herzl hosted the first Zionist conference in Basel, Switzerland. Herzl had a vision. After seeing Alfred Dreyfus, we've talked about this story many times. Let me refresh your memory. Alfred Dreyfus was a Jew in France who was horribly dishonored in public. Lied about, he was framed up, and they brought him out for a a public dishonoring. They broke his sword, they tore off his badges, they ripped out his beard... And Theodore Herzl was a journalist there covering the situation and watching as people were crying, death to the Jews, death to the Jews. Theodore Herzl himself, a Jew, realized in that moment, there is nowhere in the world that is safe for us anymore. Unless we can have a Jewish homeland. And the Lord, I believe, began to stir in Theodore Herzl a desire for a Jewish homeland. And so he began to go around the world, connecting with other Jewish leaders around the world, and and bringing this together. In Basel, Switzerland, 1897, he stood up and declared, there's a land without a people, and a people without a land. 
Give the people without a land to the land without a people. Why would he say that? Because the whole land, the mountains of Israel, were desolate, empty, and ill-used. Jerusalem was not even a blip on the map. The Ottoman Turks didn't care. The Muslims didn't care. It didn't matter to them. only matters now when they think they can get a foothold to drive Israel out. And that's not a political statement. It's a biblical statement, which we will talk about more on Wednesday night. And then Theodore Herzl really rattled some cages with a great prediction. He said, in five years or 50 years, we will have a homeland of our own. 1904, Theodore Herzl was dead. Died of a heart attack, I believe, if my, if my memory serves me. But within 50 years, just as he proclaimed, in 1948, the Jews had a homeland again. Became a nation again. And some of the first Jews to come rattling back into the land looked like skeletons. Didn't they? Following the Holocaust... People who were skin and bones, just barely starting. In fact, do you realize when they came back into the land following the Holocaust and began to rejoice that there was a place, a safe place for them, immediately they were attacked by all of the surrounding Arab nations and those who had survived the Holocaust were now fighting for their lives. It's remarkable. It's an amazing story that has not happened any other time in history. And so the bones began rattling. Verse 8 going on says, And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So they've now moved from from skeletons to zombies, basically. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds. The four winds is Hebrew speak for all over the world. Come from all parts of the world, he says to the breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. The rattling bones were scattered. The rattling bones were scorched dry. Add these. The rattling bones belong, verse 9 tells us, to those slain. So these are the bones of the slain. And number four, the process was slow. It was slow. Bone first, and then sinew that would connect bone, and then flesh, which would mean you start to see the enfleshment on the bones, the internal organs begin to appear, begin to build up, and then skin to cover all of that. And finally, breath, number two in your notes, revival. We move from the rattling to the revival. And it's important to understand, let me underscore this again. This isn't a prophecy of resurrection for individual people. Now there's plenty of that in Scripture. You understand, just because this isn't a prophecy of resurrection doesn't mean that the Scripture doesn't prophesy about resurrection. Even in Jesus' own resurrection, that is the picture for us, the promise that if we live believing in Jesus, even if we die, we will be resurrected with Him. But this is not about that. This is a prophecy of the resurrection and restoration of a dead nation into and on a desolate land. Bones on the mountains of Israel, bones in the valley, a dead people and a dead land. And God says, I'm bringing it all back to life. I'm restoring this. And so life got breathed back into these standing zombies. The word breath here where he says, prophesy to the breath, say to the breath. The word breath is in the Hebrew, many of you would know this, ruach. In the Greek it would be pneuma. It's it's similar in the Greek and the Hebrew because both pneuma in the Greek and ruach in the Hebrew is translated the same way. It's either breath or wind or spirit. It can mean any one of those three. Breath, wind, or spirit. You could say, whoa, the Ruach is blowing today, and you're just talking about the wind. Or you could say, take a deep Ruach, and you're just talking about breathing in. Or you can speak of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. It's one of the three. How do you know which one it is? The context always determines whether Ruach is breath, wind, or spirit. And here, and please get this, I'm not meaning to unspiritualize or despiritualize what's happening, but right here, Ruach is breath. It is not spirit. The context is clear. 
He breathes the breath into them. He gives them life. It's breath as in life, like with Adam. When God breathed into Adam the breath of life, that wasn't bestowing upon Adam His Holy Spirit. It was just giving Him life. Breathing into this created man. Genesis 2 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Every person on the face of the earth has received the breath of life. But don't miss the obvious life truth here the Word of God. The Word of God breathes life. Let me say that again. The Word of God breathes life. The power of life is in the Word. Ezekiel cries, Dim dry bones, hear the Word of the Lord. Hear the Word. And if inanimate bones are so responsive to God's Word, why do people, the only intelligent creatures of God aside from angels, why do people find life so difficult? Why does life get hard? Why do we struggle? I'm not talking spiritually. Not yet. I'm just talking about life. Why is life hard? And what is the answer? Where are the solutions for just getting through day to day, dealing with life as it comes? Gang, the Word of God breathes life. The Word of God is life to us. The Lord said in Isaiah 55.10, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, hence life, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, again, life, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The power of the word of God is life. You might say... Okay, you mean eternal life? No! I'm not talking about that yet. I mean life now. The power of the Word is life now. If your life seems scattered, or scorched, or slain, or just slow, I think perhaps you need the Word. Because the Word of God breathes life into you. I got home Wednesday night after Ezekiel 35 and 36. We had a great time. And I got home Wednesday night and said, sure, I could go three or four more hours. I just felt alive. Because the Word does that. It should never do the opposite. It is, I believe, a sin for a pastor to put people to sleep and to kill people with the Word of God. This Word is life. And it should be such in our lives and be received that way. Psalm 119.25 says, My soul, the seed of my intellect, my soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Lord, bring a brightness to my eyes and a sharpness to my thinking and an energy to my bones, Father, by your word. Because your word is life. And your word means and breathes life into us. And Ezekiel is a great example of this truth. And this is why I say we're not talking about eternal life. We're not talking about the breath of the Holy Spirit. Not yet. We're just talking about revival unto life. We're talking about coming alive. Israel is in the land today. There is life in the land because God spoke it. Because God said there would be life. He says, note this, um, He says, prophesied to them, there was no breath in them, I breathed into them. Um, He says, I will put, verse 6, I will put sinews on you, flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, that you may come come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. Guess what? Most Jewish people know that He's the Lord. Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, knows that He's the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord as in Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, not yet. Although some think, have mentioned perhaps maybe Netanyahu is a closet Christian, but we don't know that. Lots of Jews in the land. They know He's the Lord. Jews all over the world. They, they, they know He's the Lord. They think perhaps he's forgotten about them. Many wonder if, if he's still in existence. But they, they know he's the Lord. There is revival. Bones rattled together, sinews formed, flesh grew, skin covered flesh, and God revived the people in the land. And we have seen it happen in this lifetime. The people of Israel revived in the land. I saw a video the other day. It was so cool. 
my wife posted it on Facebook, and it's an, a Jerusalem flash mob. And it shows this. There's just a kind of a courtyard there in, in Jerusalem, in the old city area, and, and a Jew sitting there, and they're having their coffee, and they're eating their shawarma, and they're talking, and it's just kind of a normal afternoon there in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, over loudspeakers comes this thundering, really cool beat. You know, kind of like this. And all of a sudden, like three people at a table stand up and start doing this, this dance thing, coordinated, and people are going, you know. And you've seen, like, flash mob YouTube videos before, that kind of deal. All of a sudden, there's 10 people, and then there's 20 people, and then there's 100 people, and then there's 500 people, and they're all doing the same dance. And it's right there in Jerusalem, and I just watched it and went, oh, so cool. Because it's exactly what I was studying. Jerusalem came alive. And if you go to the land today, it is alive. It is a vibrant people. There's a vitality among an ancient people who are yet more modern than many of the countries that surround them. A land absolutely alive. But listen, there's life, there's revival, but there's no spirit. The revival of these bones is not yet spiritual. This is simply the breath of life. They're alive. They're moving around. Listen, just because there's energy does not mean a revival is spiritual. There's been a lot of that in America over the last 20, 30 years. Hey, there's a revival happening here. There's a revival happening there. And there's a lot of hyperactivity and a lot of emotion and a lot of charge up. And then it just kind of dies away. And I would submit to you the revival was not spiritual. Well, those who would disagree, and that's fine, but if it was spiritual, and if it was a revival, as, as a recent one was proclaimed to be, this will go right up to the return of Jesus, and it's not going anymore. And I would say, well, then maybe someone misunderstood something. There's a lot of getting excited about stuff. Feeling alive. But it's not the Holy Spirit. Israel first must be revived as a secular nation. They come to life in the land. Flesh and blood and blood and, and, and bone and they're moving around and they're and they're excited and they're happy to be there and there are a few people that are that are more energetic than the Jewish people in Israel today. But there is a lacking of the Spirit of God. Lots of people are that way, filled with life but lacking the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians five twenty two. You know the list, the nine Uh, different fruits of the fruit of the Spirit. But it all includes these four things. Listen to this. Peace. Patience. Faithfulness. Self-control. See, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Not hyperactivity. Um, The word spastic is not used. Instantaneous or driven. These are not fruit of the Spirit. What do we see in our culture? We see people running like mad from one event or one experience to the next as if running from our own emptiness. Well, find it here. This is the new deal. This will make it happen. And I'm excited about these things and I would say that's great. You have revival, but do you have life? You have energy, but is the Spirit of God there? John 6.63, Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. How's the balance on your personal to-do list between spirit and flesh? Think about what's important to you and what you're doing on a weekly basis. And just answer that question for yourself. How much emphasis on my to-do list is spiritual? How much emphasis on my to-do list is carnal? Or fleshly. The Bible tells us, Romans 8, 6, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Israel's back in the land right now, revived, alive, vital, vibrant, but not spiritual. Oh, Rick, I've heard there are Messianic Jews all over the land. There are, and they are spiritual. I'm talking about the nation as a whole. I'm not talking about individuals. And the nation is alive, but the spirit is yet lacking. The bones are mended. There's the breath of life in the flesh, but the peace, (laughs) the peace is yet to come. Activity and excitement, gang, are poor substitutes for real life. Something else is needed. Number three in your notes, restoration. We need restoration. Verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So now he starts to get into explaining 
what this vision, what this picture portrayed. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you. Note that now it's my spirit. It's not the spirit. It's not a spirit. It's not Ruach as in breath. It's Ruach as in the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit in you and you'll come to life and I will place you in your own land and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. Now, draw back a bit. Why did the Lord use this vision for Ezekiel? I mean, it's awfully creative. It's very seventh voyage of Sinbadish. Okay, uh, To come up with a, a standing army of skeletons and to fill... I mean, the whole thing is just a vivid scene. Why does God come up with it. It's because Israel was bone dead. It's because Israel was in grave captivity. And they knew it. They knew their dryness. The people were hopeless. They knew they were hopeless. They were brittle. They knew they were brittle. They were lifeless. They understood that. They had said to Ezekiel... Our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. They said that. God brings this vision in holy, divine, and compassionate response to what the people were already thinking. The valley of the dry bones gang is an answer to prayer. God is responding to the people as He so often does. And so He brought this vivid vision in the valley in response to their hopelessness, from rattling to revival to restoration. And again, Israel today is a revived nation. Their restoration has yet to come. They are not a restored nation. They are a revived nation. Well, okay, when will life and peace finally come to Israel? When the Holy Spirit is poured out. When beyond the breath of life, the breath of the Spirit of God is poured out wholesale on the people of Israel, all Israel who Paul says will be saved. That surviving remnant of Israel who will be saved, who will receive the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Isaiah 32, verse 14 says, The palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until... Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Isaiah 44 verse 3 I will pour out My Spirit on your offspring and My blessing on your descendants and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Ezekiel 39, verse 29, we'll see on Wednesday night. He says, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. And that happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revival has already taken place. Restoration is the next step in the process for the people of Israel. And the restoration comes by the Holy Spirit poured out as Jesus returns. But I'll tell you what, if you're lacking life and peace, spiritual restoration can be yours right now if you'll let Him come. Joel prophesied in chapter 2, verse 28, it will come about after this, I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And I hate to tell you, Jim, but I'm mostly seeing visions these days. I don't know. You got the dreams, I got the visions, man. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, Bible students, you know, on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot in the Hebrew, the festival, the Feast of Weeks, Peter said, dudes, what Joel prophesied is what you're seeing right now. Dudes, it's my paraphrase. Acts 2, verse around 17. He says, look at what's going on here. The outpouring has begun. We don't have to wait for Israel's restoration gang as a nation to receive our own as the children of God. To become restored. To not just live life revived, but life restored. And I fear that there is many, there, there, there's much in the church, many people, there are many people who are living revived, but not restored. Who are living excited, Pumped up, stressed out, 
overworked, ministry to the health, wiped out, tired, but man, I'm serving God in their revival. But not restored because the Holy Spirit, the peace and the patience and the faithfulness and the self-control and these things are not yet present. And so it is with Israel, but it doesn't have to be that way in your life. Jesus said in John 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Okay? That's where we all started, born of flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Paul would later write in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us, not on the basis, basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I think we need to let the Spirit come. I think we need to let the Spirit come. Wednesday night we sang that song, The Days of Elijah. People got pumped. You know, got to the end of the song and I was shocked. A few people began to applause. Well, we shut that down right away. <laughs> there was a surge of excitement. The last note hit and then as it was quiet, it was, kind of, it was like, Woo! <laughs> Why can't we be more excited about the Lord? Why can't we be in applause for five minutes after, after we're charged up by praising Him and looking at and talking about what He's going to do? What is more exciting? Seahawks game? Gentlemen, I know you get off the couch when there's a touchdown. Yeah! Ha ha! Woo! Yeah! And my friends, you did nothing to help that process. Why aren't we that way in worship? Well, because you get out of control and it will be unspeak. No, I'm not talking about jumping off the chairs and doing backflips, although you know, that'd be cool, I guess. But you could do that without cracking your skull. I am talking about restored people praising the Lord and not being afraid to say, Hallelujah! Praise you, Lord! Yes! Oh, that was, that was good thinking about Jesus. That's good stuff. Letting it show on your face a brightness of the truth. Instead of being afraid to clap one too many times. Did he stop? He did. Okay. <laughs> let the Spirit come. Can't we just let the Spirit be here and do what He wants to be and, and, and respond? And it's okay to be emotional about true things. I think for far too long the church has been unemotional about the truth. And the truth is exciting. And so we should be. I have no idea where I am. <laughs> Activity and busyness are not the proof of life. True life comes by the Word and by the Spirit of God. Now you might say, well, okay, how do we know that this prophecy wasn't about the return of the Jews to the land from Babylon? I'm just going to raise you up. I'm going to bring you back, put you back on the mountains of Israel, because they lived in Judea and Samaria, and I'm going I'm going to raise you back up. Well, we move on from there and from the Valley of the Dry Bones to the next vision and to what I would call number four in your notes, reunion. Reunion. Note this. The Lord immediately follows this prophecy with another one of a house built with sticks. The word of the Lord, verse 15, came to me saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and the sons of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companions. And then join them for yourself one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. What's he talking about? Two sticks. Think about this. The kingdom of Israel was a united kingdom under David and Solomon, but it split into two. And the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom would be the stick of Judah. Now that's a little more obvious. He says the stick of, uh, of Judah and the sons of Israel, his companions. In other words, Judah and all those from the northern kingdom who lived in the southern kingdom. Just because there are two kingdoms doesn't mean someone from the tribe of Dan or the tribe of Asher didn't live in Judah. Or didn't desire to be near Jerusalem and the true worship of the Lord. There were two kingdoms, but there were still people from all twelve tribes in both kingdoms. There would have been people from Judah who have gone, Jeroboam, he's my man, and moved up north. (laughs) 
And so you have these two, and, and God is very specific. A stick for Judah and the whole house of Israel and his companions. So everybody who lived in the kingdom of Judah. Everybody from that region. And then he says, and another stick. And he calls this the stick for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel. And that's what confuses some people. It's very simple to understand. Ephraim was Joseph's son. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, remember? And Jacob, Joseph's father, went to bless the boys and said, these boys are now mine. I am now including these two boys, rather than Joseph himself, I'm including these two boys in full inheritance with my sons among the tribes of Israel. So technically, what was 12 tribes became 13 tribes, including Ephraim and Manasseh. Why is it still called 12 tribes? Because God then pulled out Levi to be a priestly tribe, and their inheritance would be the Lord, but you still had 12 tribes, 12 inheritances. What does that mean with Joseph and Ephraim here, though? The stick of Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel was referred to often as Ephraim. Because Ephraim was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. Judah was the largest tribe of the southern kingdom. Benjamin was also part of the southern kingdom, but they were a small tribe. So it was called the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel is often referred to in the scriptures as Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest tribe. And even if you look on a map today, look in your Bible maps, you'll see the 12 tribes laid out. You'll see a big allotment for Ephraim and a large allotment for Judah. So the stick of Judah, the stick of Ephraim, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. All the people of Israel represented by two sticks. And God says, Ezekiel, write those names on the sticks. People will understand. Then take the two sticks and join them together as one stick. And that's what I'm doing. He goes on in verse 18. He says, When the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, northern Israel, and the tribes of Israel, his companions. And I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, says the Lord. The Lord is saying here, in essence, stick with me. (laughs) No, they say. Stick with me and I will reunite you. And I will make you one stick. That's what the Lord does. He unites. He does not divide. God is the great uniter. Psalm 133, a psalm of a sense of David, which means they sang it as they ascended on the holy days to the temple. They sang, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the beard, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming upon the, down upon the edges of his robes. In other words, it is unity by anointing. Where the anointing of the Lord is, there is unity. It's like the dew of Hermon covering the mountains of Zion. Hermon in the north, Zion in Jerusalem, the dew of Hermon covering the entire land of Israel. The whole land united, the whole land covered with this dew, with this anointing of the Lord that unifies the land. That's what the song is singing about. And he says, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And by the way, my fellow shepherds and pastors, this is the job of church leaders. It's not business meetings. And it's not determining what has to happen, although some of that obviously is necessary. The job, Ephesians 4.11 says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, bone and sinew and flesh and skin and breath and the Holy Spirit until we rise as one man with Christ as the head. Unity. God is all about unity and reunion. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love. You know that's not what he said. He said if you have love for one another. He didn't say just if you're a loving dude. No, if you love one another. And people have said, and I have heard this, I love people, I just hate the church. (laughs) Then you're not his disciple. 
You hate the church, you are not His disciple. You're His disciple if you love one another. I know the church is messy. I've been at this a long time, gang. I know the church is messy. I've messed it up many times myself. But if we love one another, we show that we are His people. And Jesus said in John 17.22, The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Now, back to Israel. Historically, after the Babylonian captivity, there would never again be a divided Israel. The two sticks joined together. There's not two kingdoms of Israel today. There's one. There is one group of people. And so you might say, well then, so this prophecies for way back then? No. No. Read on. The real reunion is connected to the revival in the land. Where did I stop? Verse 20. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them back into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land. Where? On the mountains of Israel. I'm going to make them one nation on those mountains. If you look at a political graphing or picture of a map of Israel today, the mountains of Israel are carved out and given to the Palestinians. But the Lord says, I'm regathering all my people, my people Israel. I am uniting them on the mountains of Israel. He says, and one king will be king for all of them, speaking of Jesus. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. You might say, well, okay, so when is this going to happen? The Lord is specific. On the mountains of Israel... Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, with the high mountain of Israel, Jerusalem at the center, God is going to make this happen. It's not when, that's where. When is any time, soon. In fact, there's a good chance we're going to see it before the church is raptured. Just going to throw that out there. I know that rattles some cages. I know that it is politically charged. I know there are people in the streets of Seattle, probably this morning, holding up big signs talking about Israel and their apartheid state. Driving out those poor Palestinians. And I don't mean to sound hard-hearted toward Palestinian people, toward Arabs in general, toward those who are downtrodden, or those who are being used by their leadership, as most of the Palestinians are. But I'm talking about what the Lord says He is going to do. He's going to make them one nation in the land. Not just in the land that the UN decided to give them, the useless nations. Not that land. (laughs) The whole land. The whole land. And it may be much larger than we expect. And again, we may see this sooner as opposed to later. And perhaps even before we're raptured. The rapture doesn't depend on it are being called home, by the way, let me clarify, does not depend on blood moons either. Our being called home does not depend on the feasts of Israel. Our being called home can happen at any time. When He determines that it's time, we're going to go. And He already has that time set. But it's entirely likely before that happens, we're going to see something remarkable. We're going to talk about that on Wednesday night. I invite you to come back and hear that. Revival in the land is just beginning. The restoration, the reunion, is going to involve the reclamation of the entire promised land. In fact, I believe (laughs) all 300,000 square miles of it. And it may be seen prior to the tribulation, prior to the rapture of the church. And I'm just, I know I'm throwing, I'm just baiting you guys to come back Wednesday. You need to. Because I just don't have time to get into it this morning. Number five in your notes. Note this, the royalty. When is this all fully going to be known and seen and understood as of the Lord and by the Lord and the work that He has done? The royalty, number five, and we pick this up, uh, verse 24. My servant David 
will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk by my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever and David my servant will be their prince forever and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, not a seven-year covenant with them, an everlasting covenant of peace. And I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, quickly, a couple of things to note. The royalty spoken of here is none other than Jesus Christ. But, but Rick, it says David. Okay, note this. Jesus is the David of verse 24. This is a reference to David. Luke chapter 20, verse 41, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, winning yet another argument. And He said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. For your feet. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the Pharisees were stumped. You know, my dad used to say, "Cut my legs off and call me Shorty." They just stood there. <laughs> how does David call his? Son, David's son, the Messiah, referred to as David's son throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. How does he call him Lord? Well, that's easy. He just came before and after David. Only Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the servant David, the king. Of the line of David. Of the genealogy of David. By the way, I think David will be there too. In fact, and I... This is just Rick, Rick's opinion. But you notice in verse 24, he says, My servant David will be king over them. And then in, uh, down a little bit further into verse 25, he says, David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Well, is he king or is he prince? Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the king. It's possible that David himself will be a prince. Kind of a vice president sort of thing. Or secretary of state. You know? For Jesus And I mentioned this a few Wednesday nights ago. Someone says, well, that's weird. That's weird. You think David's going to be resurrected and be in the kingdom? What, you don't believe in resurrection? (laughs) Why is that difficult to believe if you already believe that you're going to be there? Don't you think you're better than David? Let's not even go there. (laughs) So, he is the David, but he is also the dwelling place. Jesus Look at verse 26 again. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst and my dwelling place will be with them. What's the word dwelling place there? Mishkan in the Hebrew. Tabernacle. My tabernacle will be among them. Wasn't that just referring to the temple? Perhaps. But we also know John 1.14, that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We also know, and if you've studied these things, the book of Exodus describing the tabernacle is basically painting a picture of Jesus. From the furniture to the curtains to the implements throughout the tabernacle, the whole thing is a massive picture of Jesus. And if you'd like to study that, it's online. Go to the book of Exodus and go through it. He is the David. He is the dwelling place. Jesus is Himself the final fulfillment of all these things. Jesus got the bones rattling. Jesus got the revival going, the restoration, the reunion, and the final royal state of Israel will be because Jesus Christ returns as King just as God promised. Amen? Amen. Now, where are you today? I'm in the barn, Rick. No, it's not what I mean. Where are you? Ezekiel cried dim dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Are you rattling around in hopelessness? Feeling empty and lifeless? Hear the word of the Lord. Are you maybe 
thinking, I'm in a great revival. (laughs) Things are good. (laughs) But you're stressed and you're worried about life. Then perhaps it's a flesh revival and not a spiritual one. Hear the word of the Lord. His word is life and His word is peace. Some dry bones out there just need to hear the word of hope. Will you speak it to them? Will you speak to the dry bones in the valley in which you live? Will you bring the word of the Lord to them? Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Now that's Christ speaking. But the application is there for us. And I want to give you here at the end a key for speaking life into dry bones. Here's how you do it. How to speak life into dry bones. And when I say dry bones, I mean scattered people who are dead in their sins. Walking zombies who think they're revived, but those who are without the Spirit of Christ. Here's the method. And we see it with Ezekiel. First, the Lord says in verse 4 of chapter 37, Ezekiel prophesied to the bones. Then he says in verse 9, Ezekiel prophesied to the breath. That's the method. What do you mean? Speak to the bones. And then speak to the breath. Tell them about Jesus. And then tell Jesus about them. The most simple plan of evangelism I can give you is tell people about Jesus and pray to Jesus about people. And sometimes we lose the power of the evangelism because we have not taken it home and then entrusted it to prayer. And to say, Lord Jesus, the conversation I had today, would you cause it to bear fruit? Speak to the breath. Speak to the Spirit. Speak to the bones. Speak to the Spirit. It's proclamation and it's prayer. It is invitation and it's intercession. Let's stand together. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. Go ahead and stand up. Look back or or just listen. Verse 10 says, So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. He didn't say an exceedingly great nation. He said an exceedingly great army. And that phrase, exceedingly great, in the Hebrew, ma'od gadol. Ma'od gadol means a vast, massive military host. In the valley, in the mountains of Israel. Now listen, gang, the IDF is strong and smart, and maybe the best fighting force in the Middle East today, but it is not exceedingly great. And it is not stationed on the mountains of Israel. Well, there are a few outposts. But the IDF does not stand as a mighty army on the mountains of Israel. What does that mean? Come back Wednesday night and I will tell you. (laughs) Let's bow in prayer. Remembering as we pray, and I invite you to think this through with me, to speak to the bones and speak to the breath. Our invitation is to hear the Word of the Lord. And maybe that's you. You need to hear the Word of the Lord this morning. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died on the cross in your place. And rose from the dead. And if you believe in Him, you can have life, not just now, but forever. Life in His name. And if you've made that decision and you're walking in that life, hallelujah, you need to enter into intercession for those who are still dry bones. So let's do both this morning. Father, we come before You. We ask that You will hear our prayers. I pray, Lord, on behalf of anyone present or anyone who even hears this at any point, that they will, at this moment, give their lives to You for restoration. Pray for a revival of spirit, Lord. I pray that you will rattle some cages and and change some perspectives. And I ask, Lord, that this day, that someone will make a decision among us for Jesus. And if that is you right now, and you have not committed your life to Jesus, I invite you to do so by just just saying to the Lord very simply in your heart, Lord Jesus, come alive in me. 
Forgive me of my sins. By Your blood on the cross, I pray You will forgive and save me and bring me life by Your resurrection. For I believe that You are the Savior. And I'm asking You to come and be my Lord. In Jesus' name. Father, You know our hearts. You read them well. You know the people that we have been in contact with and are going to be in contact with in our lives. And You know how many of them are dry bones. And I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that You will bring fruit to these prayers. That friends and family members who right now don't know Jesus will hear the message that is preached to them and receive the breath of the Spirit and be born again. And I ask that You will use us, such as we are, Your people, Lord, who believe in You, to speak to those who are lost. But Father, I pray that You will, that you will put a, just a, a, a burden on our hearts to also speak to You about those who are lost. For we know the time is short, and we pray, Jesus, before You come, use us to save those dry bones. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.